Welcome to the Renaissance Podcast, and thank you for joining with us to worship and learn more about God. We are so excited to have you be a part of this week's service. For more podcasts and services from past weeks, or to join us online on Sunday mornings, check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Now, enjoy the message. Good morning to you all. My name is Joe, and I'm one of the leaders here. We're really glad that you're here with us today. We're continuing our Bible study in the book of Galatians. So if you have a Bible with you, you can go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, we're going to put the words up on the screen for you to follow along. But I want to say this before I jump in. Um, I was having a moment this weekend where I was just thinking about like all the things in life that like I'm responsible for that, you know, rely on me, and, and uh, I've been thinking about it more than ever. Maybe it's because I got a three-month-old at home now, right, and just oh, your whole perspective on all these things changes, and, and uh, the question in me begins to rise of like, well, what if I am not enough here, and what if, I, what if I'm not enough there, or what if I fail, or, or what about all my shortcomings, and in the ways that I am not coming through, what if, what if I drop the ball and everything falls apart. And it's one of those, I had one of those moments where I just know God was speaking to me. I don't, I don't have that all the time. It's just this real soft kind of inward thought that comes into my head. This is how it works with me. Just this random thought comes into my head that is like so good and profound for me in that moment. I know there's no, no way it came from Joe. And Jesus said to me, you're not me. <laughs> You really think you, you can hold all of your stuff together? You really think you, you can put so much effort and, and work into it and be so responsible that everything is going to be okay because of the great job you've done? That works up to a point, but at some point, we're not Jesus. This is really the struggle that is happening here for the church in Galatia that this book was written to. It's a letter, actually, that a man named Paul wrote to Christians in this region where they'd been taught initially by Paul that to have a relationship with God, it depends only on our faith in Jesus. It has nothing to do with our works. It has has nothing to do with whether or not I'm responsible enough to obey God and maintain a relationship with him. Somewhere along the way, somebody snuck in and said, really, you become a Christian by your faith, but you've got to stay a Christian by continually pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. You've got to stay obedient. You've got to be diligent. You've got to do all the things. And if you don't do all the things, then you are not a Christian anymore. And Paul says, hold up, calls a foul, blows that whistle, and writes this letter and says, that's not the way it is. You can't do all the things. You're not Jesus. It's all in him. And so his entire message of this book, and it's a little bit unique, the book of Galatians is, and that the entire book is really just one singular message that we are made right with God by our faith and not by anything that we do. Because it is this one singular message, it's a, a little difficult to preach it from week to week because it's the same thing over and over and over again. Really what it is, each passage that we study is just a different argument that Paul is making to bolster this idea that that our relationship with God depends only on our faith in Jesus Christ, not on anything that we do. I was talking with my friend John about this yesterday, about how 
It's kind of the same thing over and over and over again. And he reminded me, well, Joe, you had to eat lunch last week, didn't you? Quite frankly, I've had a whole lot more meals since then. But he reminded me, we have to eat over and over and over again. We have to do the same thing over and over and over again to stay alive. We need this truth over and over and over again that it's all in Jesus Christ and not in you and me. You're not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. He's the only one who makes us right with God. And so in chapter 3, verse 15, Paul begins to make this argument of how it is new now because of Jesus. There was once a way that a relationship with God was maintained by performing certain rules and doing certain work. So where our relationship with God relied solely on our obedience. And Paul's argument is now that Jesus has come, it relies solely on our faith. Now, the way that their relationship with God relied on obedience was through this thing called the law. It's not like the law in which we think of, a, a set of legal codes that govern our society. It, it was that in one way, but it was so much more in that it was a, a religious law that guided every aspect of their life. So not just how they interacted with society, but how they interacted with one another. Even how they interacted with their children at home, the law permeated every bit of their lives. And, and God gave them this law so that it would govern their relationship with him on the basis of their obedience. Now, Paul begins to introduce here in chapter 3, which we'll get to, uh, this idea that before God ever gave the law, he actually made a promise to a man named Abraham that was different than the way the relationship with God through the law would look. The promise God gave to Abraham was assured in its fulfillment just because Abraham had faith before he ever obeyed God. You see the difference here. There's, there's, there's one, one thing set up, the law, that is governing our relationship with him on our obedience only. And yet God made a promise 430 years prior to giving the law that said our relationship with him would be based on faith alone. So Paul's argument is this. God wants us to know him like Abraham did by our faith, not like the nation of Israel did by their obedience to the law. I want to go ahead and read the passage. Galatians 3, we're starting in verse 15. We're going to read through the rest of the chapter. And I want to read it first and then come back to this contrast between the law that God gave to Moses and the promise that God gave to Abraham. So in Galatians 3:15, Paul says this, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant. And we're going to come back to this word covenant later because it is a uh, it is underlying everything that we're talking about here, this word covenant and what that means to God, what it means for us. So we'll come back to that. But for now, just keep that in mind. The word covenant is important. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And he's referring to a passage in Genesis 15. And he says, and it does not say to offsprings, the word isn't plural. It doesn't say to all of your children's. It says to your child, referring to, it's, it doesn't say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So he made this promise to Abraham that, that one day Abraham would have many descendants and that the world would be blessed through them because of one 
descendant. We learn later this is actually Jesus Christ. Verse 17, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years after the promise, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. So God made this promise to Abraham, and then 430 years later, he gives the law. What Paul is saying is that because he gave the law later, it doesn't mean the promise is now worthless. And we're going to come back to that. It doesn't make the promise void. Verse 18, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise. So if the law is what makes us right with God, then we're not made right with God according to a promise that he made. But God gave Abraham this promise, he says. Verse 19, why then the law? Why does the law exist then if God originally wanted us to have a relationship with him through faith? Well, the law was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come, until Jesus should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. I don't know what that means, so we're going to move on from that. (laughs) Now, an intermediary implies more than one. But God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? God made a promise that we would only be right with him through faith. And then 430 years later, he gave us the law that said, obey these things. Are these contrary to one another, Paul asks in verse 21? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Here's... Here's why they don't count each other out. There's different goals with them. The promise is to give us life in God. The law is to show us how dead we really are in ourselves. This is why we need the promise to stay in effect. Verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who do all the things. That's not what it says. I was hoping somebody would stop me and call me out. It says, it would be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. We don't need the help of the law anymore to restrain our sin. We now have faith in Jesus Christ, verse 37, for as, uh, first, I'm sorry, 26, for in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. We're not just students who have to obey these rules. We're actually children in God's family now through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, where there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. There, I'm going to be honest and just acknowledge there's a lot of weird stuff in here that doesn't make any sense or mean anything to us without looking back at the Abraham story and parsing through the difference between the law and the promise. That's my work today, is to, is to show us the difference between the two and help us understand how the promise God made to Abraham is so much better for us. And that's what the glory of God living in us now hinges upon, is that promise that was made. So first I want to start with this, by answering the question, what is the law? Well, the law is the more than 600 rules given by God to Moses for the nation of Israel as a guide for a proper relationship with God. 
It was given by God because humans are sinful creatures who need his help. We had the law because we're sinful and we need God's help. He saw that, and so he gave us the law. Now, here's the thing about the law. The law does not justify us. And what that word means, and we've done a little bit of work over the last few weeks about what justify means, but it's simply, the simplest way of saying it is this, the law does not make us acceptable to God. It's not the purpose of the law. This doesn't mean the law had no purpose, though. Martin Luther said this, people foolish but wise in their conceits jump to this conclusion. If the law does not justify, it must be good for nothing. How about that? Because money does not justify, would you say that money is good for nothing? Because the eyes do not justify us or make us acceptable to God, would you say that they should be taken out? Because the law does not justify, it does not follow that the law is without value. So we must find and define the proper purpose of the law. We do not offhand condemn the law because we say it does not justify. Just because it doesn't make us acceptable to God, Martin Luther is saying, doesn't mean we should throw it away or say that it, it really had no purpose. It was just trash. What Paul is trying to say here is that it served a purpose for a time, but now that time is over now that Christ has come. So what is the purpose of the law? First, we got to understand this, that the law was temporary. (laughs) It was just for a time. It had an expiration date. They didn't get told this when they were given the law. Uh, God didn't say, now on on this date, uh, when Jesus dies, the law will no longer be necessary. But it, it was temporary. Verse 19, it says, This, the law was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come. There was a a time that God had in mind that the law would no longer be necessary. So so we need to understand that about the law, that that it was intended originally to be a temporary measure as part of God's plan. Now, something else about the law is that it relies, in order for it to be effective, on my obedience, on your obedience. It relied upon the obedience of the nation of Israel. It's like our traffic laws. They only work if we all obey them. <laughs> how, are they, how are they working? <laughs> it, it only works if people obey it. And if you study the history of the nation of Israel all throughout the Old Testament, you'll find that the law was not working for them because they were constantly disobedient to God. This is one of the things that I love about the Bible, and one of the things that I think lends itself to the truthfulness of the Bible is because it just shows us all the dirt of our heroes in the Bible. We get stories about Abraham lying, about Moses murdering a man and fleeing to the desert. Stories about David, the one we call the man after God's own heart, the one that is held as a, an example to men to, to be like, and he was an adulterer and a murderer. All, all, of these, all of these pictures of people in the Bible that we hold up as heroes, the Bible tells us all their dirt. If somebody made it up, they would have put those things under the carpet. There's a bunch of dirt on these people because that's all people got (laughs) is dirt. And this is why Jesus has come to clean us up. So the law requires that I be obedient in order for it to work. And here's another thing that the law does. And one of the purposes of the law actually was to bring distinction. Verse 22, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. 
And so it shows humanity that we're different from God. God is holy. God is glorious. God is better. He's different from us. And we have sin. We're imperfect. We're completely other than God. So part of the purpose of the law in giving it to the nation of Israel was so that they would become what God said to them, a a people who were set apart from the rest of the nations. So his intention with the law was to show them that they were, in fact, distinct from the rest of the world. That's partly why the law was given. Now, what happened over time is that in their distinctness from the world, they began to deride everyone else. So much so that by the time Jesus came, everyone who wasn't Jewish, most of the religious leaders who were Jewish believed that you were less than a dog, (laughs) if you weren't Jewish. So this idea that God originally gave them that, that I'm giving you the law to show, to show the rest of the world that people who are mine are different, they turned into a weapon to push other people away from them. So this is one of the problems of the law, even though its purpose was to bring distinction. Now, the law also has the purpose of restraining us. Verse 23, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. We're inherently sinful beings. We, we just sin. No one has to teach us how to. We actually have to be taught how to be obedient. And so the law in, in its purpose was there to show us what disobedience to God looks like. So it revealed to us our sin. Now, the problem with that is, while it shows us what the sin is, it doesn't fix the sin that's inside of us. I don't obey the speed limit because I'm pure. I don't obey the speed limit. But if I did, it wouldn't be because I was pure. It would be because I don't like the consequences of not obeying the speed limit. Right, Brock? (laughs) The law shows us what is wrong and what is right. And it is a restraining influence It was a restraining influence on the sin of the nation of Israel. The last thing about the purpose of the law, in verse 24, it says this, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. This word guardian is a Greek word where we get our English word pedagogue from. Now, that's not a word we use in everyday language, pedagogue. And, and if you, in fact, if you just threw it around like it was nothing, we'd probably think you were crazy, right? But pedagogue, Webster defines literally as teacher. The law was our teacher. Now, Paul used this word intentionally um, because it's different from other words that are translated teacher in the New Testament. Because this, this idea of the pedagogue in ancient Greece Uh, was a person who was typically the slave of a master, who his job was to care for the son in the family who was between six and 16 years old. And, And his job as the pedagogue was to take the son to school every day and pick the son up at the bus stop every day, all the way from six to 16. When he got home, the pedagogue did homework with the son. The pedagogue did lessons. It was, it was not just a teacher at school, but a constant companion and tutor who, who really shaped and influenced that child's life. Paul says, this is what the law is. That was its purpose, was to shape and influence the life of the nation of Israel. Now, we have to remember the, the pedagogue was only there for a time. Once they reached a certain age, the pedagogue was no longer necessary. 
Paul uses that word intentionally to show us that, that there came a time when the law was no longer necessary. Now, I told you we're going to contrast what the law is between the promise that God talks about. So what is this promise? Because we've mentioned that a lot the last several weeks, that God made a promise to Abraham. Well, it's a promise that he made that God would give the promised land to one of his descendants. And in Genesis 15, 18 through 21, it says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant. There's that word again that we'll come back to. He made a covenant with Abram or Abraham saying, to your offspring, I've given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, all of this land I've given to your offspring. This is the promise. Now, why is this promise important for us? Well, Paul mentions it when he says, it's not many offspring." It's one offspring because the promise had to do with Abraham's descendants being given that land so that one day in the city of Bethlehem, a baby named Jesus Christ would be born of a virgin who would grow up in that land, who would do miracles in that land, and who would one day die in that land, be buried in that land, and then raised from the dead. The promise God makes to Abraham there has to do with Jesus Christ. So that's what Paul says here in verse 16. He was referring to one offspring, and that offspring is Christ. Now the promise is made by God because humans are sinful creatures who need God's help. This is why the law was given, because we're sinful and we need God's help. He gave us this promise because we're sinful and we need his help. Now, the law did come after the promise. But this doesn't necessarily mean that the promise is negated just because God gave the law afterwards. I'll give you an example of what it would look like to make a promise and then for that to be negated. When I was a kid, in fact, even now today, I'll, I'll shamelessly admit that, um, I've been a wrestling fan for as long as I remember. Yeah. We've got a few. Anybody here willing to admit that right now? My name is Joe, and I'm a wrestling All right, man. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I've been a wrestling fan as long as I can. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. Joe, you know wrestling is fake. Don't you? you hear it all the time. You know wrestling is fake. And to, and to that, I would just say this. You know this is us. It's fake, right? You know Yellowstone is fake, right? It's a show that I like to watch. That's what it is. And I've loved wrestling ever since I was a little kid. And maybe only those of you who are wrestling fans will remember this, but in the late 90s when wrestling was at its height in my lifetime, there was a guy named Diamond Dallas Page who was coming to the mall here in Decatur, Illinois and was going to sign autographs. And my dad promised me I could go get an autograph from Diamond Dallas Page. And at that time, like, he was hot. Like, that's the word wrestling fans use to describe somebody who's, like, a really big deal. He was hot in the business. He was the biggest thing at the time. Everybody knew who DDP was. And the fact that 12-year-old Joe was going to go get to meet him, and he would somehow, like, shake my hand, and all of his wrestling energy would transfer to me, and I would one day become <laughs> like him. Like, the fact that my dad promised me I could go meet him changed my life. And the day came, and my brother and I, who loved to sabotage our lives, got into a fight. That stupid jerk. I've never forgiven him. It was more like MMA. And because we'd gotten into a fight, my dad and in his attempt to discipline us, withdrew his promise 
I couldn't believe it. I thought it was just a threat. I thought he was just kidding. My father is a man of his word. <laughs> 23 years later, I've still never met Diamond Dallas Page, which is why I look like this, and I'm not in a wrestling ring right now. But that was a, a, a promise that my dad made to me that because something changed, my disobedience, he took that promise back. Was he right in doing so? No, absolutely not. <laughs> Some might argue that he was. What Paul is saying here is that's not what happened when God gave the law. God didn't make this promise to Abraham and say, one day a, a, a savior is going to come and change everything. And then everybody just kept screwing everything up. So now God's like, well, I guess I better give him this law and take my promise back. That's not what has happened. This has been part of God's plan all the time. Remember, the law was our teacher to show us how sinful we were. It wasn't meant as a replacement for God's promise. Galatians 3.21 says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. Certainly not. They work together. They work hand in hand. God intended them both for a purpose. Now, Here's the difference between the promise of God and the law that he gave. The law was temporary, but the promise is eternal. Verse 17, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years after the promise, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. The law is eternal. It had, the promise, I'm sorry, is eternal. It had no expiration date like the law did. It didn't have a just-in-case clause that said, we're ripping the promise out if you guys screw up too much. The law was temporary, but the promise is eternal. The law relies on my obedience in order for it to work. The promise relies only on God's faithfulness. It has nothing to do with whether or not you and I obey. It has everything to do with whether or not God is faithful and consistent in his promises, whether or not you can trust him. Now, whenever someone makes a promise to you, you judge whether or not you can believe that promise based on that person's track record. If their character is such that they don't follow through, you'll check in with them to make sure that's what they're doing. Before COVID, at a time when Steak and Shake still served breakfast, I used to meet uh, uh, my buddy Dan every Friday morning at 5.30 at Steak and Shake. Now, some of you just gasped because you're like, people are up at 5.30 in the morning. Dan and I were the only ones. And I, we got to a point where there was a time where we didn't even check in with each other. We just knew that we were going to show up to the restaurant. 5.30, Dan was going to be there. He was usually there before 5.30, honestly. Now, I love getting up early in the morning, so it ain't nothing for me to get up early in the morning and have breakfast with a friend. I also like to stay up late at night. So it's nothing for me to stay up late at night and have to get up early in the morning and get up real late at 5.30 in the morning. And so while Dan was constantly consistent in his punctuality at Steak and Shake, Joe, on the other hand, would sometimes receive calls from Dan at 6 a.m. You gonna make it today, bro? <laughs> now, I knew Dan was always gonna be consistent Dan didn't know Joe was going to be consistent at 5.30 a.m. So after a while, he'd start texting, going to be there tomorrow? Going to show up? We don't have to check in with God once he said something. 
He's a keeper of his promises. Over and over and over again, we see this all throughout the Bible. If God has promised something, he's diligent and consistent to follow through with it. So the promise God made, even though centuries, millennia go by before it is fulfilled, could hang your hat on God's faithfulness. Now the law, it brings distinction, but the promise that God made brings unity. In verse 28, he says this, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female for you're all one in Jesus Christ. While the law eliminated, or while the law uh, made distinctions between people, what the promise has done has eliminated those distinctions. Now that doesn't mean it's eliminated our uniquenesses. I am still a white male. That doesn't change because God made a promise. The color of my skin and my gender doesn't change because God made a promise. What this is saying here is that God doesn't look at any of us differently. <laughs> We're all on the same level with one another. Not one of us is seen in a better sight in God's eyes. All of us are on level playing field because of the promise that God have made, has made. Because his promise to Abraham was that this descendant, Jesus, would bless the entire world no matter where you are from, whether you are Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. This is huge and crushing for a first century Jewish mindset who believed that they were God's chosen people who were distinct and greater than everyone else on the earth. And Paul says, we're all the same in Jesus Christ. God looks at us all the same. Now the law was meant to restrain me. We talked about that. Keep me from going too fast. It doesn't. I still speed. But the promise from God is meant to set me free. Verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Remember that word pedagogue. The law was our pedagogue. It was our teacher for a period of time. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through Faith. Paul's saying the promise God made was meant to graduate us out from underneath this tutelage of the law, a system that required our obedience, our ability to hold up our end of the bargain of God's commands. We're no longer under that. Now we're under this, this promise that makes us part of God's family. We're his children now. That's how he loves us. That's how he cares for us. That's how he views us because of the promise that was made. Now, the law, remember, is a pedagogue. It's a teacher. It's a guardian. But the promise is Jesus Christ himself. Verse 16, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but to one. This promise was about Abraham's offspring, Jesus Christ. The promise itself, Jesus is the promise himself. And so he's the, he's the unifying factor in all of these things. He's the pivot point in where the, it changes from uh, being reliant on the law to being reliant on the promise of God. He's the one that brings all of us together in him through our faith to make us acceptable to God. It's all in Jesus Christ, not in what we do. Back to what I said at the beginning, you're not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. We need him to do it. And that's why God has given them, him to us. Now, I mentioned in the very beginning 
because verse 15 uses this word covenant and is used again later and that we would come back to that word and talk about that. And the reason for that is, is because the difference between the law and the promise rests on the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant, which is essentially what we're saying when we say Old Testament and New Testament. It's referring to the old covenant, the old agreement, the old promise, and the new covenant, or the new agreement, the new promise that God had made. Now, in the Old Testament, the word translated covenant is a Hebrew word that literally means something like, we're going to cut a deal. So what this would look like was, they would, two parties would come together. Let's say that there's a tribe of people, we'll call them the Republic of Larry, okay? And then there's another tribe of people, the Kingdom of Stan, okay? Now all the Larrys are really strong and good fighters, and all the Stans are really weak and milquetoast, but they're great at growing crops. Now the Larrys, because they're strong and they're athletes and they're powerful, sorry Dalton, they're not as good at growing crops, okay? But the Larrys are great at growing crops. So Larrys and Stan, they come together and they say, we'll protect you if you provide us with crops. This is the foundation of most ancient covenants in the world. Two parties coming together to agree on their mutual benefit. And there were obligations, like you gotta protect us every time an enemy comes. That's great, but you've always gotta make sure we've got enough to eat so that we can stay big and strong and protect you every time an enemy comes. And the way that they would ratify this agreement that they made together was by cutting a deal or cutting a covenant. And typically this looked like taking animals and cutting them in half and placing them on either side of a trench. And the blood would run down into this little trench And then each party would walk through the blood and they would say to the other party, if what, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, may what has happened to these animals today happen to me. If you don't hold up your end of the bargain, may what has happened to these animals today happen to you. This is a promise that two parties would give each other what they need and it used the threat of death to prevent violation of its terms. If the contract isn't fulfilled, someone's going to die. That's covenant in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the word that is translated covenant means something completely different. And this is interesting to me because there's a Greek word, which is what the New Testament is written in, that means the same thing as the cut a deal thing from the Old Testament, but it's never used in the New Testament. The Greek word that's used to describe this covenant, this relationship with God in the New Testament is the same way we would say the last will and testament of someone. So whereas the old covenant was, if you don't hold up your end of the bargain, you are going to die. The new covenant says this, the promise isn't fulfilled until someone dies. So if you picture with me Jesus on his... Last night on earth, he's having what we call the last supper with his closest friends around a table. And he starts to break a loaf of bread and he's got a cup of wine there. And he says, this, this, is the, this represents the new covenant in my blood. It's not just a, a, a reordering of the old. We're not just remaking what was. I'm giving you something completely new and different and better, that no longer relies on your obedience, no longer relies on you upholding all of your obligations. It relies on one thing, does Jesus die? 
And because Jesus has died, the promise is ours. This is the argument Paul is making here, that we have nothing to do with our salvation. We have nothing to do with with the maintenance of our relationship with God. It is all in Jesus Christ. And what do we do? What is our end? We have faith in him. We believe that he died for us. We believe that he rose for us. And because of this, we're now God's children. Not because of anything we've ever done. Over and over and over again, we'll hit this same point in the book of Galatians. And I can't help but wonder, maybe that's not by design for us because we need to know that over and over and over again because, boy, we like to do it on our own, don't we? We like to forget that we're not Jesus, don't we? And Paul's argument all throughout this book, especially today, is it's not you, it's not me, it's not Israel, it's not Abraham, it's not Moses, it's not David, it's not any of the prophets. There's no power in any human being to save any of us or keep us saved. It's all in Jesus Christ alone. That's where we put our faith. That's where we put our trust. That's where we put our hope. And if we see that and understand that, and believe that, and know that we're children of God, our lives, I'm convinced, become different. He makes us new. We just have faith. Lord, I'm so thankful that you've taken the ball out of our hands. You've placed it in the hands of your son, Jesus only capable one the only one who can follow through the only one who is the most responsible the only one who is the most faithful the only one who never fails Lord I pray that you would help us to see and when we let go of all the things that that we think we need to hang on to to make you happy find life and peace and hope and joy in you change our minds about this lord change our minds about how we about how we see you lord let us not be uh, uh, putting ourselves under the tutelage of the law anymore change our minds so that we know we've grown up from that now we live in the promise of a child of god we thank you for that lord in jesus name Thanks for joining with us today. We would love to pray for you and make a connection with you. So please check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Here you can ask questions, request prayer, find past messages and podcasts, or support Renaissance through online giving. We can't wait to hear from you. 